And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Well, hello. Welcome aboard. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. And, uh, man, we got an awesome show in store for us today because we're going to have our good friend Michael Lofton of Reason and Theology. He's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. Going to talk about Vatican II and understanding Vatican II. Uh, talk about uh, decades of all sorts of uh, distortions and misunderstandings about this council. Uh, we really do need to get a grip on, you know, what is the proper approach to Vatican II? And... Um, that could help us uh, be- better equipped to share our faith, explain the faith, and, and help fellow Catholics out who maybe find it as a stumbling block. So uh, he's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. And on this side of the break, as always, you know, we're going to learn a logical fallacy, informal fallacy, with our Finding the Fallacy segment. And today's Finding the Fallacy is no accident. Actually, it is accident. It's the fallacy of the accident. And we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father is St. Theophilus of Antioch. So great stuff in store for us today. A very important early church father um, in terms of history of doctrine. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I want to welcome all of you, beginning, as we always do, with all of you watching live stream on Facebook, YouTube, all the other platforms we live stream on. Welcome aboard, folks. Yes, I'm seeing the shamrocks there in the chat room at YouTube. And also, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. It's welcome aboard, folks. Um, it's great to be with you. And, uh, you know, thanks for tuning in. Uh, as always, you know, uh, I want to point you to our phone app and our website because that's two very great ways that you can share and uh Share the, all the information you learn on this show and all the other shows Virgin Most Powerful produces. Uh, so, a phone app. You can download all the shows right there. It's also got a lot of freebies, too, folks, and it's totally free. You can get it on, the, on your iPhone. Also, uh, our website, which is Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Of course, that is also free. You can access uh, all sorts of cool stuff, and especially all the shows. So, if you click on our show... Scroll down the hands-on apologetics. Bam, you got all our shows right there. And you can share that with your friends. And uh, that's very powerful because, uh, like I said, you know, that's all part of apologetics and evangelism, sharing resources. And, of course, we're on social media as well. Now, I know many of you are probably hearing me through all sorts of different platforms. But please, you know, uh, do whatever you can to make us more visible to others. Share us with friends. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please do. Also, uh, you know, hit the like, ring the bell, toot the horn. Um, I don't know what else you do in social media. But, you know, let people know about the show because uh, we got great guests like this week. You know, we had Erica Barrow. We have all these great guests. Um, it's a shame if uh, there's people out there that need to know the information but simply don't know that we had them on. So, 
Uh, please, you know, tell people about us, uh, share the good news, and share resources. And, uh, you know, that's part of bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ, right? So uh, let's see if you have a question for Michael Lofton. You can give us a call at 888-526-2151. That is 888-526-2151. And let me give you the Dojo Mailbox. The official Dojo Mailbox is questions at handsonapologetics.com. And, uh, you know, I love to get all that stuff out in the front of the show because then we can go wall-to-wall with our guest. And, uh, okay, let's go to the Finding the Fallacy segment. The Finding the Fallacy for today is the fallacy of the accident. Now, this is not a car accident, folks. This is not, you know, you accidentally, uh, you know, burned the noodles or something like that. The accident is actually um, a logical fallacy. It's also known as destroying the exception. It's informal fallacy that is made to apply a general rule to all situations when there clearly are exceptions to the rule. So simplistic rules or laws rarely take into consideration legitimate exceptions, and to ignore these exceptions is to bypass reason and to preserve the illusion of a perfect law. So basically, it's the rule of thumb, where the rule of thumb becomes the ultimate rule for everything. So since something normally happens a certain way or certain things are normally uh, fall within a purview of a category, um, then exceptions are kind of destroyed, right? They're, they're pushed away. And by the way, the, uh, the uh, flip side of the accident is, you guessed it, the converse accident in which uh, basically all exceptions are accepted and the denial of a general rule. So it's... So you have to remember those two. They're like two sides of the same coin. Um, you can't absolutize a rule, especially a rule of thumb, and you can't also absolutize uh, exceptions. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Does this happen in apologetics? Yes, it does. Uh, at the top of my tip of my mind, I can't really think of specific examples, but I do know it does happen. Um, let's see. All right. Well. Without further ado, why don't we jump to meet the early church father for today. Early church father is St. Theophilus of Antioch, who lived sometime, or actually died sometime around AD 185-191. St. Theophilus was the seventh bishop of Antioch, the sixth successor of Peter. And as you Catholics know, you know, Peter was in charge of Antioch, and then he moved on eventually to Rome. So there's a couple of C's that can trace itself back to Peter. Of course, Peter dies in Rome, and that's how we get the, the Roman pontiff. But nevertheless, uh, Antioch can be traced back to Peter, and Theophilus is part of that line. Little is known of him besides a few details, which were gathered by his work Autolycus, or to Autolycus. He was born near the Euphrates and was a convert from paganism to Christianity as an adult. After having made a careful study of the scriptures, he died sometime between the year 185 and 191 AD. And so we only have one work from him. It's a letter to Autolycus, probably written about 181, a few years before his death, of Theophilus' writings. Um, basically, this is the only one that survives. It's an apologetic work in three books. The third book contains a chronology of the world, 
which ends with the death of Marcus Aurelius on March 17th in 180 AD. It is assumed then that the work was probably written about a year later. So uh, that's how we know the date. And by the way, you should know this too. Uh, whenever you see dating in antiquity, uh, unless a particular historical uh, date is mentioned, this is true even for uh, books of scripture, dating books of scripture, unless they mention a specific historical date, much of it really is guesswork. So in this case, actually, we do have some datum, so we can figure out uh, approximately at least what the latest date uh, this work would be written at. And it's quite early, you know, around 181. This would put it as a contemporary piece to the great Irenaeus of Lyon, who also wrote around 180. So uh, let's see, we could do a couple of excerpts from the work just so you can get a feel. Uh, again, we're taking this from Jurgen's Faith of the Early Church Fathers. Uh, he says this, quote, Consider, O man, his works, the changing of the seasons at set times, the changing in weather, the well-ordered course of the planets, the well-ordered progress of days and nights and months and years. And he continues, The providence in which God arranges that nourishment is at hand for all flesh, and the subjection in which he has ordained that all things be subservient to mankind. Then he continues, He alone is God who has made light of darkness, who has brought forth light from among his treasures, who made the storehouses of the south wind and the treasure chambers of the deep and the boundaries of the seas. Um, let's see. Um, later on in the same work, he says, quote, If you are unwilling to be anointed with the oil of God, it is on account that we are called Christians because we are anointed with God's oil, which, of course, talks about charismation, right? The oil of God. So here we have 180, talking about the sacrament of confirmation. Uh, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, okay, let's try... I have all these quotes from Jurgens. How about this? At the same time, I came upon the sacred scriptures and the holy prophets who recited through the Spirit of God the things which had happened in the manner in which they had happened and present events in which they are happening and future events in the order in which they will be accomplished. <coughs> I acknowledge, therefore, the proof afforded by things happening as they have been predicted, and I do not disbelieve, but obedient to God, I believe. <coughs> Excuse me. So, of course, that's talking about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in scriptures and uh, that it has prophetic nature. Um, see, I, I'm not sure. I don't believe I have enough time to write another quote, though. So that's our early church father for today, St. Theophilus of Antioch. <coughs> and by the way, while we have a couple of seconds, I just want to announce that we're going to do a live stream on the Apocrypha Apocalypse tonight on YouTube. Uh, William Albrecht and myself, we're going to look at B.F. Westcott's and some things he says about Augustine and the Deuterocanon. So that's going to be at 7 Eastern time. I just want to give you guys a heads up for those who uh, are following the Apocrypha Apocalypse, my own personal project there on YouTube. Uh, please join us. It'll be a lot of fun. And I hear the music coming up, and that means that we're coming up to a break. But coming up on the other side of the break, we have our good friend Michael Lofton with us. We're going to talk about understanding Vatican II. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics, and we're going to talk about Vatican II and how to understand it to help us navigate those waters. We have our good friend Michael Lofton with us. Michael is a graduate of Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, where he received a Master's of Arts in Theological Studies. He's appeared on EWTN, Sirius XM Radio, and various other things. Of course, he's been on this program a lot, and you're probably more familiar with him in his work with uh, ReasonAndTheology.com. There's also a channel, Reason and Theology, on YouTube. Great, great show. And Michael, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Thanks for having me, Gary. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, hey, congratulations. You got like a hat tip there on uh, Pints yeah. with Aquinas. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Is it is it cold over there, by the way? I see the jacket. Uh, you know, it's, it's slowly warming me up. So we are... In the fifties, maybe, okay. which means the furnace isn't going on, which means the house is colder. So, hence the jacket. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. Here yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are things well, down? I got the in fan blowing in here because it's a, it's a little hot today. So, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Hey, uh, you know, it's funny. Every time I turn on recent theology, it's you, uh, there's always you, you guys are always talking about me. I swear. Are we? I, 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 for example, we probably I, uh, are, yeah. <laughs> I turned your, your program on, and you were reading yeah. a question from the chat room, and this guy says something like, yeah, I watched uh, Machuda's white, uh, debate with White, and he had a question. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. I can't listen to this. I don't want to hear about myself. I turned we, we, to listen to we you. We bring up your canon stuff all the time. I've, <laughs> I've found it very helpful. I know the other guys have as well. So, yeah, you, you come up quite a bit. <laughs> It seems like every time I turn it on. But nevertheless, uh, you know, the reason why uh, Matt Frad gave you that uh, that prof was because you guys are doing such great work there. I mean, just really good quality stuff. Thank you. Yeah, and, and we, we definitely needed that boost, so it was greatly appreciated. And we're just going to continue to push forward doing what we're doing, so Very more to good. come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, you cover a wide range of subjects, everything from, like, atheism to you know you name it um right and right. uh so th that's what i love about your channel it's like no matter what you're into you're going to find something that's of interest you know right yeah try and try to not stay on just one particular topic though there are focuses and things like that it, it's good to be diverse so we're going to continue to do that yeah, and you know, I was surprised today you chose uh, Vatican II, understanding mm. Vatican II, since uh, obviously there is no misunderstandings, right? I mean, is, <laughs> <laughs> there's no controversy at all with Vatican II. None whatsoever. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, th this is coming up a lot. <laughs> and so it is one of those that I've been talking about a little bit lately, just because it's something that I think that needs to be addressed. You see it yeah. come up all the time. People think that they can completely throw out the Second Vatican Council or that it teaches heresy or that it's just merely pastoral and has no teachings in it. We're going to talk about some of those things. And then what we're going to do is, uh, if we if we have time, maybe look at some particular sections of Vatican II that tend to be difficult areas uh, of interpretation you know, and maybe look at them and ask, you know, are, are they in accord with tradition or is there some kind of deviation? And I'm going to take the position that there's no uh, fundamental discontinuity and, in fact, that there is continuity. 
um, when it comes to these controversial passages. So that's kind of where we're headed. Yeah, and uh, your background with dogmatic theology, I think, really brings some clarity to the issue, because you're uh, you're very good at discerning, you know, different uh, theological notes. I, I guess you could say doctrinal mm-hmm. notes, and, and you know, the mm-hmm. levels of authentic teaching and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Where I think you know most Catholics aren't even aware of those distinctions. So that's why I find your commentary very valuable. Thank you, and, and you know, that's where I was once weak on, and not that I still don't need improvement, but uh, there was a point in which I didn't know anything about what, what you're talking about, maybe theological notes or the weight of a magisterial proposition. And because I was weak on it, and because I saw how important it is to discussions in theology and just my own life and understanding the faith of the church, I started to dive into it. So I yeah. kind of found my way uh, into the magisterium because of that, because of that personal pursuit and the need to be able to have an informed dialogue with others. Yeah, thanks be to God, because we're the beneficiaries of that. So uh, let's see, where do you want to begin? I mean, there's... You know, yeah, I, I do have some preliminary remarks about the Second Vatican Council, maybe dispelling some myths and also just giving a quick overview of it. Okay. And then I was going to dive into some particular parts, uh, namely from Lumen Gentium, uh, Dei Verbum, and then maybe Dignitatis Humanae. Um, so <clears throat> let's just talk preliminary remarks, if that's okay. Okay, yeah, absolutely. What is the Second Vatican Council? I mean, this is an ecumenical council. I mean, we've had 21 of these things in 2,000 years, right? The first one was the Council of Nicaea in 325. Many people are familiar with it. Well, the most recent one is the Second Vatican Council from 1962 to 1965. It's, it's, It's very unique in some ways. One thing that makes it stand out is at the Second Vatican Council, you had over 2,500 bishops attending this thing. This is one of the most attended ecumenical councils in history. To my knowledge, none of the other ecumenical councils came even close to that many numbers. Um, so you have a lot of bishops there at Vatican II, and not just from one place in the world from the West or from the East, you have bishops from all over the world. So the East is being represented, you know, Eastern Catholics who are in communion with the Pope. And then you have, of course, Western bishops. And and that is not necessarily unique, but when it comes to this many numbers, it, it, it's unique. And also in the past, when it comes to the ecumenical councils, they often were somewhat one-sided. They were lopsided. Maybe it was mostly Eastern bishops present, and, and in this council, it was mostly Western bishops present. Here you have a, a diversity of bishops and a great number of them attending, with, of course, the Pope there as the head of the council. Now, the purpose of the council was, uh, well, it was multifaceted, but the big thing was updating the church. That's what, you know, Pope John the 23rd, who want, who called the ecumenical council, wanted to do. Now, you might argue and say, well, it didn't really do a great job of updating some things, or then you might say, no, it did a great job at updating some things. But right. that's the debate. That was the purpose of the Second Vatican Council was to update things, but to do so in a way that's not in discontinuity with the past. So still maintaining tradition, still maintaining the substance of, of dogmas and things like that, but maybe refashioning them, reformulating them as far as our presentation to the world of our teachings and our faith so that we could be better heard by society. It's debatable whether or not Vatican II was successful to that end, but that was the purpose. Now, mm-hmm. 
A lot of people think that, okay, well, Vatican II, I can just dismiss it because, look, didn't the Pope say that this was mostly a pastoral council? You know, you have this idea going on that Vatican II was just pastoral. So eh, nothing to see here. You can ignore this thing and there's no teachings there. There's a sense in which we could say that this is very pastoral in the sense in which you don't have anathemas and you don't have canons. You have more uh, chapters and uh, dogmatic constitutions that are just expressing the faith, but without anathemas, without canons. And Vatican II is not the first one to do that, by the way. Florence is another one. Um, okay. So you, we've we've had this before, and we've had somewhat pastoral-leaning councils, ecumenical councils before. Vatican II isn't really unique here when it comes to that. But a lot of people think it's pastoral, but— they're surprised to find out in the 16 documents that were promulgated by the Second Vatican Council. There's actually a lot of teaching in Vatican II. There's quite a bit of teaching in Vatican II. Right. And so we can't just dismiss it as pastoral. We need to consider those teachings as well. And that raises the question, then, is it binding, right? If there are teachings in it, is it binding on my conscience as, as a lay faithful? Uh, do I have to believe what it teaches? Well, you know, whenever the magisterium teaches something, we automatically, the, the you know, the there is an assent that is owed to a magisterial proposition, uh, when the church teaches with authority, automatically there's a, a an assent that needs to be given. Now, the assent can vary as far as its level according to how authoritative something was, but there is an automatic assent that is needed. We could talk about rare cases where maybe a dis, uh, an assent can be dispensed in very rare cases, but it's just that. It's very rare. In most cases, we are to give assent to teaching. So Vatican II is no different here. The level of assent owed to Vatican II varies depending on what proposition we're considering. But that we are to assent to it in general right. is, is, is certain. We, we most certainly are. There's another question that I wanted to address because uh, this comes up a lot. Some people will say, look, Vatican II didn't teach anything infallibly, so I could just ignore this thing. They'll say, and, and they'll even quote something from Paul VI where he's saying that Vatican II didn't use the extraordinary magisterium to infallibly teach any dogmas. That's very, very technical language. Without going a whole lot into details there, it doesn't mean that nothing was taught infallibly at Vatican II. It just means that no dogmas were taught infallibly at Vatican II. There are some other teachings that could be infallible that aren't dogmas. Yet there's still infallible propositions. And in, and in fact, I, I do hold the position that there are some things that Vatican II taught that it settled theological controversies that are infallibly taught by the Second Vatican Council. Um, we could go into details on what those are, maybe if you would like, but I do want to throw it out there because a lot of people think, well, hey, look, there's nothing infallible here, right? So I could just dismiss it. No, there are some things that are infallible. But let's just pretend for the moment that there was nothing taught at Vatican II infallibly. Mm. It's still teaching authoritatively, even if non-infallibly. It's still teaching authoritatively. And assent is still owed to authoritative teachings, even when they're non-definitive, even when they're non-infallible. 
assent is still owed. It's called religious submission of intellect and will. My intellect and will is to submit to that proposition. Okay, And if I don't do that, by the way, it's a grave sin. Uh, it's, it's a very serious matter if you fail to give religious submission of intellect and will. And it's not just this pious silence. I'm going to just be silent about what Vatican II says and not give my commentary. No, it's an actual ascent of intellect and will. It's an internal thing. Right. Okay. A um, <clears throat> couple other preliminary remarks, and then we'll dive in if that's okay. I, I hope I'm not belaboring the preliminary remarks here. No, that's uh, that's fine. We have about 30 seconds, though. 30 so se- okay, well, maybe, well, we'll, we'll pick it up on the other end then. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know one passage that's often put on for uh, religious ascent is where Jesus says, he who hears you hears me. Mm, and so you know, that, yeah. that requires a religious ascent then. Yeah, there, there's a whole lot there when it comes to magisterial authority in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, cool. Uh, yeah, I, this is a great place to stop. We will start up on the other side of the break. And we are chatting with Michael Lofton of Reason and Theology. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel, also reasonandtheology.com for his other stuff. We're looking at Vatican II and understanding the Vatican Council. More to come on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Michael Lofton about understanding Vatican II. And great first segment because, Michael, I have to say, I've heard all of those. I mean, this is very, very common. The same kind of attitudes towards the Second Vatican Council. It's it's coming up all the time, and that's yeah. why I've been harping on Vatican II lately. <laughs> and I'm going to continue to do more. In fact, I'm going to go through uh, each one of the documents in detail and discuss them over, over time, uh, Lord willing. So I think it's great. needed. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So when, one of the other things that I wanted to mention just by way of preliminary remarks here, that is the question, could the, sac- the Second Vatican Council teach something that is erroneous, that, that is not true, that is incorrect? Could? Well, very technically speaking, I think it could be argued that an ecumenical council could teach something that's incorrect um, whenever it speaks non-definitively. It could never do that whenever it binds people definitively. It's it's protected from uh, by the Holy Spirit from error in those cases. It, they it's it's infallible in such cases. But whenever it uses maybe a lower level teaching authority, something that's non-definitive but authoritative, um, could it technically? Yeah, um, it could, although I don't think Vatican II ever did, but it, it's possible. Okay. But here's the problem. It couldn't just repeatedly err in its non-definitive authoritative magisterium to where the Second Vatican Council might include a ton of errors all over the place. That is not possible because there is a general protection there's, there's not an absolute protection to non-definitive teachings of the magisterium, but there is a general guidance and a general protection that's going to generally prevent something like that. Right. So some people might think, well, look, uh, you know, a, a, a council could err in its non-definitive teachings, right? 
Yes. So Vatican II, I maintain, is full of errors all over the place. And so we should just ignore it because it taught in many cases non-definitively. And I think that it just erred all over the place uh, in, in those cases. Some people would maintain that position, and, and it's untenable uh, because there, according to the magisterium itself, is still a general preservation even given to the non-definitive teachings and also um, a document released by the magisterium called Donum Veritatis would exclude that view. <clears throat> um, one, one other thing, too, since we brought up Donum Veritatis, some people hold the view that Vatican II, it was very pastoral, and it's making all kinds of prudential decisions. Well, they will maintain that it erred all the time in cases of prudence, in, in places of discipline. Mm -hmm. So some people would say, okay, maybe it doesn't have errors in its teachings, but it's erring in its prudential decisions all over the place. And though it's possible for the magisterium to err in matters of prudence here and there, it's not possible for the magisterium to repeatedly err in matters of prudence because that too is generally protected by the Holy Spirit. And this is coming from Donum Veritatis and a few other um, magisterial documents. So I'm, I'm not just making this up. This is coming yeah. from the teaching authority of the Catholic Church that, that backs up what I'm saying. Right. I think that is helpful for us to keep in mind whenever we approach the Second Vatican Council so that we approach it properly whenever we're reading something, maybe in Lumen Gentium or Dei Verbum, that we have that perspective, that we keep it in mind and we try to understand how is this to be understood in continuity with the past because I know it just can't be making mistakes all over the place. This is protected. So how can I reconcile this? And what I'm speaking about there is is called the hermeneutic of continuity. Some people have heard of that. That's from Pope Benedict XVI in his 2005 Christmas address to the College of Cardinals. And by the way, his Christmas address is magisterial, so it, it is binding. Um, and he notes in the Christmas address that you can't come to the Second Vatican Council with an interpretation or a hermeneutic of discontinuity, of rupture. You can't interpret Vatican II in a way that is in rupture with tradition. He says you have to interpret it in a way that is in continuity with tradition. That's key because that's binding on our conscience too. We are to engage the teachings of the Second Vatican Council in a way that is in continuity with the past. We are to read it in such a way. So with that being said, let's maybe take a look at at least Lumen Gentium. I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, I might breeze through this really quickly, and then we'll move on to Dave Verbo. Okay. But if not, yeah. uh, we'll we'll talk at least about uh, Lumen Gentium because this is probably the biggest one. And here I'm talking about paragraphs 14 through 16 of Lumen Gentium, which you can find online for free. <clears throat> Here's what it says. This sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faithful. So it's talking about Catholics who are formal members of the Catholic Church. Basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, it teaches that the church now sojourning on earth as an exile is necessary for salvation. Did you hear that? Vatican II says the church is necessary for salvation. 
Right. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, when people read these these paragraphs, they tend to just go to little snippets here and there in Lumen Gentium, and they think that, wow, well, the church is just teaching that everybody could be saved, and uh, you know, all Muslims are going to heaven, and all Buddhists and Hindus are going to heaven. They, that's the way they read Vatican II. Right. But in fact, you got to read it a little bit more carefully, because that's not exactly what it's saying. Actually, that's far from what it's saying. Yeah. And notice here it says the church is necessary for salvation. That That's traditional teaching. The church has always taught that, that outside the church there is no salvation. There's a sense in which we need to understand that in a qualified way, of course. But as a, a general principle and rule, that is actually dogmatic, that outside the church there is no salvation. So Vatican II is just repeating the same tradition. Christ present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator in the unique way of salvation. Did you catch that? Christ is the unique way of salvation. There's salvation in no one else, as the book of Acts, in no other name under heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and life, Jesus says in John 14, right? It's just simply reaffirming that. Hmm. There's salvation in none other than Jesus. Vatican II backs that up. There's no salvation in the name of, you know, uh, some Hindu god out there. Yeah. There's no salvation in Muhammad, although Muhammad's not claiming to be a savior. But you know what I mean. There's no salvation in any other religion, in any other historical figure. There's only salvation in Christ. So, again, it, it reiterates the traditional teaching. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism. So Vatican II is saying baptism is necessary for your salvation. Now, yes, we understand historically there's multiple ways in which you can receive baptism. The ordinary way is through water, right? But in exceptional cases, maybe somebody who's a catechumen could receive the graces of baptism, even though he hasn't come to the font yet. Uh, if he dies and he's in the process of, of becoming a Catholic, but he hasn't reached the font yet, we understand that he is given the graces of baptism. Or somebody in a similar situation who sheds their blood for the name of Christ. They're, they're washed by baptism and given the graces, even though the water didn't touch their body. So we understand there's some exceptions here, right? Right. right. All right. <clears throat> and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church. For through baptism, as through the door, men enter the church. So it's affirming you can't enter the church without baptism in one way or another. Whosoever, therefore, here's a big part. Knowing that the Catholic Church was yeah. made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or remain in it, could not be saved. That is a very, very <laughs> serious proposition there. Vatican II right. is explicit. If you know the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation and you refuse to enter it or remain in it, that is, you leave it. You cannot be saved, according to the Second Vatican Council. It's a very strong statement. Yeah. And that's a very traditional statement, too, by the way. Mm -hmm. So whenever we read the next paragraph, and the paragraph after that, we need to keep this in mind. The general tradition is being affirmed. Now we're going to talk about some ways in which we're going to understand this and, and talk about exceptions, with all of that still being true, mm -hmm. not negating any of that. Right. 
Okay. They are fully incorporated into the society of the church who possessing the spirit of Christ accept her entire system and, or her system and all the means of salvation given to her and are united with her as part of her visible body structure and through her with Christ who rules her through the supreme pontiff and the bishops. This is just coming straight out of Pius XII, uh, who was a bishop. Uh, prior to this council who teaches that, you know, somebody who is a full member, who is a actual formal member, they've received the sacraments of the Catholic Church, they're under a bishop who's in the Catholic Church. That's what it's talking about. The bonds which bind men to the church in a visible way are profession of faith. So here's some of the bonds that unite us to the church. Our profession of faith, the sacraments, ecclesiastical government, you know, the bishops, and communion with one another. He is not saved, however, who, though part of the body of the church, does not persevere in charity. So it's saying, by the way, you Catholics who who are fully Catholics, by the way, you too, you're also in danger. Because if you don't persevere in charity, you won't be saved. So just because you're a member of the Catholic Church, just because you have our sacraments and you have our bishops and you have our profession of faith, don't think that you're immediately going to heaven. If you don't persevere in charity, you too are in danger. And we, we, we as Catholics need to keep that in mind. Right. He, he remains indeed in the bosom of the church, but as it were only in a bodily manner and not in his heart. And what it's basically saying is somebody who has lost charity, but is a formal member, they remain a member, but they're a dead member. They're like a, a dead branch on a tree. You know, there's right. no life in it. It's still part of the tree, but it's dead. That's kind of what's going on here. All the church's children should remember that their exalted status is to be attributed not to their own merits, but to the special grace of Christ. Did you hear that, Protestants? <laughs> if they fail, moreover, to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only shall they not be saved, but they will be more judged severely. So in other words, you Catholics who are not persevering in charity, you're going to actually be judged even worse than maybe, say, a Hindu, for example, who isn't saved. We need to keep that in mind. All right, now I see the the break is coming up, so we'll pick it up on the other end. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, for those who think that uh, Vatican II was uh, full of kumbaya and holding hands, there are pretty scary statements in it. Yeah, it's Uh, pretty serious. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, We're chatting with Michael Lofton on Understanding Vatican II. More to come on the other side of the break. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. We're talking with Mike Lofton of ReasonAndTheology.com. Also, check out Reason and Theology on YouTube. And we're talking about Vatican II. And, Michael, yeah, you know, it's so important to actually read the text of Vatican II, especially Lumen Gentium, because... Like you pointed out, I mean, there there's uh, amazing uh, aff- reaffirmations of mm. the faith, and also they don't sugarcoat it either. Right, you yeah, know. it's pre- pretty forceful statements at some points here and there. And I've I've yeah. noticed in, in my experience, those who generally tend to criticize the Second Vatican Council, just always ask them, have you ever read Vatican II? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, generally the ones that criticize it are the ones who've never read it. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
But, you know, picking it up on paragraph 15, this is where we start to dive into some of the more controversial parts of Lumen Gentium, because this paragraph is now dealing with uh, Christians that are not Catholics formally. You know, they, they, they might be a Protestant or they might be Eastern Orthodox or something like that. Uh, here's what it says about them. The Church recognizes that in many ways she is linked with those who, by the way, notice that term, linked, uh, linked with those who being baptized are honored with the name of Christian. So there is a connection that we have with them, and here's why. And this is just traditional teachings throughout the church history. If they are given the Holy Spirit, you know, let's say a Protestant or an Eastern Orthodox, if they're given the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of baptism, which is what we've always maintained, then there is some way in which we're connected with them. And what is that way? Well, the Holy Spirit is fully in the Catholic Church. And now the Holy Spirit is being given to them in their baptism. There is some kind of link there. That doesn't mean that they have a fullness of participation in the Holy Spirit or a fullness of participation in the Church. But there is a connection to the Church. There is a link there namely the Holy Spirit in the case of Protestants and also the sacraments in the case of Eastern Orthodox. So uh, that's what it's talking about when it's talking about that link. That's just traditional church teaching. Mm -hmm. Though they do not profess the faith in its entirety, okay, because we, we recognize that they do profess the faith to some extent. I mean, you got a whole lot of Trinitarian Protestants out there, and Eastern Orthodox can profess the same creed with us, and some Protestants can too. So, uh, But they don't profess maybe it entire in its entirety. Uh, there's quite a few things that a Protestant might deny that we would maintain as Catholics, and there's a few things here and there that an Eastern Orthodox would also deny. So that's what it's talking about. Or do not persevere or preserve unity of communion with the su successor of Peter, and that's done through your bishop. So maybe your bishop left the Catholic Church or something, or your bishop just was never part of the Catholic Church. That's what it's talking about. We're still linked to them, though, because they have the Holy Spirit, or at least they've been given him in the sacrament of baptism, and they also may have some valid sacraments. So that's what it's talking about. For there are many who honor the sacred scripture, taking it as a norm of belief and a pattern of life, and who show a sincere zeal. They lovingly believe in the God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ, the Son of God and Savior. To the best of their understanding, sure, we would say they have some flaws there, but we we're assuming their intentions are, are good. <clears throat> It goes on to say, they are consecrated by baptism in which they are united with the church. Now, that doesn't mean that they're fully united just because it says that they're united with the church. As we've always understood prior to the Second Vatican Council, there is a union there whenever somebody receives baptism outside of formal membership. This goes back to the controversy with Pope St. Stephen and Cyprian. Mm -hmm. We understand there's a union there, and there's a partial communion. There's a partial sense in which they're part of the Catholic Church, but it is partial. There's some things that are incomplete. Namely, they may not have received the sacrament of confirmation to fully complete 
their their baptism, if you will. And then also, uh, it could be that they don't have a bishop who is in communion with the Pope, which is also necessary to be fully in the Catholic Church. Um, so we would say that there is a communion, there is a union here with the Church and with Christ, but it is imperfect, it's impartial. They also recognize and accept other sacraments within their own churches or ecclesiastical communities. And ecclesiastical community is a fancy term for uh, Protestants because we would call Orthodox uh, communions, we would call them churches in the sense that they're valid local churches because they have a bishop. That doesn't mean that they are universal churches. That wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, it, and it doesn't mean that they're sister churches in the sense that what we have and what they have is on equal footing. No, we, we have the universal church. They're at a lower level. They have at best, talking about Eastern Orthodox here, they have at best local churches. Now, Protestants don't have local churches because they don't have a valid bishop. So that's why it calls them ecclesiastical communities. Many of them rejoice in the episcopate, that is, bishops, celebrate the Eucharist and cultivate devotion towards the Virgin Mother God. That's especially the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox. They also share with us in prayer and other spiritual benefits. And that shouldn't be controversial. That We, we should recognize that, of course. There are some things that God could do to those who are formal members to bless them. That That's not new. Obviously, they, they share in some spiritual benefits, Baptism is one of them for crying out loud, right? Uh, likewise, we can say that in some real way they are joined with us in the Holy Spirit, for to them too he gives his gifts and graces whereby he is operative among them in his sanctifying power. He, There is a real way in which they're joined to the Holy Spirit. Not fully, not fully, and they're not receiving all of the benefits, but they could be given his sanctifying power. Sure, we understand that. There, there is what's called invincible ignorance and principles like that where God could be sanctifying a person who's still not a formal member. We, un we, we recognize that in preconciliar teachings, so that shouldn't be new. Some, indeed, he has strengthened to the extent of shedding their blood. Now, that is going to come as a shock to some people because Florence once said that, you know, even if, you, if you're outside of the Catholic Church and you die as a martyr, you're not really part of the Church. You, you don't really shed your, your blood for Christ. It's, it's not meritorious. But here it's saying that some of them, the Holy Spirit has strengthened to shed their blood for Christ. Well, what's going on? Florence is talking about people who have formally left the church, formal heretics, people who are formally not part of the church. If they were to shed their blood for Christ, it's not meritorious. You're, you're in formal schism. Right. But here it's talking about people who are born separated and don't know the truth about the Catholic Church. Those, it could be that God has strengthened to shed his blood in a meritorious way. That shouldn't be controversial. In all other Christ disciples, the Spirit arouses the desire to be peacefully united in the member de member manner determined by Christ as one flock under one shepherd. And he prompts them to pursue this end. So though God is operating in these communions and churches, he's urging them to come into full communion. He's not just saying stay there. He's not just leaving them where they are. The Holy Spirit is urging them to come into full communion with the Catholic Church. Vatican II teaches that. So it's not indifferentism. It's not just saying, 
it's not just saying it's okay to just remain Orthodox. It's okay to just remain Protestant. That's not what Vatican II is saying. The Holy Spirit that's in them should be urging them to join the Catholic Church. Mother Church never ceases to pray, hope, and work that this may come about. She exhorts her children to purification and renewal so that the sign of Christ may shine more brightly over the face of the earth. Paragraph 16, last paragraph. I'm going to try to run through it really quickly because I know we, we're coming up on the uh, end of the time here. Finally, those who have not received the gospel, so now it's talking about non-Christians, are related. Notice now it's not saying linked. It's now talking about they're related in various ways to the people of God, that is, church. In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the Testament and the promises were given and from Christ was born according to his flesh. It's talking about the Jewish people. Of course, they're related to us. We share the same Old Old Testament. I mean, effectively, I know they would uh, not accept the Deuterocanonicals, but we share a whole lot of the same Old Testament. And, and they uh, were part of the covenant community at one point. They've been broken off, as Paul says in Romans, um, and, and God is not done with them. He's going to one day bring them into the church, and they will become Christians uh, in, in the end of time. But um, <clears throat> here he it's noting that they're related to us, especially the Jews, and that should be obvious. We share the Old Testament together. On account of their fathers, this people remains most dear to God, for God does not repent of his gifts. That's just a quote from direct out of Romans. You shouldn't have a problem with that part. That's coming straight out of Paul. He makes uh, he, he does not repent of the gifts he makes, nor of the calls he issues. Again, straight out of Romans. But the plan of salvation also includes uh, those who acknowledge the Creator. And this is where people start to get confused, and they say, wait, the plan of salvation includes these non-Christians? Well, hold on. That shouldn't come as a surprise. God is able to save anybody, right? So, of course, in a very general sense, the plan of salvation includes every single human in in human history. I mean, God offers salvation to everyone. It doesn't mean that it's going to be accomplished in them personally. It doesn't mean that they will be saved, but it does include them. Now, it goes on to say, in the first place among these, there are the Muslims who professing to hold the faith of Abraham, they profess to hold it, they don't do so perfectly. There are some elements of the Abrahamic faith that they do maintain, and then there's some aspects about the Abrahamic faith that they don't maintain, that they're, they're faulty on. So they profess to maintain it, I would say not very well, along with us, adore the one merciful God. Now, this is where they get really, really uh, tripped up, some people, when they read that. Wait, Muslims adore the one merciful God with us? That There's a qualified sense in which they do. They don't do so successfully. They don't do so salvifically, but they're, they're trying to be oriented towards the one true God and aiming at the one true God. They are attempting to adore him, just like we are. We do so successfully, by God's grace. They don't. And nowhere it says they successfully adore the one uh, true God or salvifically do so. But they are oriented in that trajectory. I mean, they they are trying to worship the one God, right? They don't believe in multi multi gods. So there there's a whole lot of ways in which we could uh, qualify this. But I see we're coming short, so maybe we'll have to pick it up another yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do how much longer do we have? One minute. Uh, about a minute, yeah. If that... let, let me briefly also leave you with this one part, uh, one word about that. 
Pius X, go read his catechism. He says just as much as Vatican II here, and he's before Vatican II. So Vatican II isn't coming with anything new. But it's not saying that, you know, Muslims are just good to go. They too need Christ. Everything we read earlier in paragraph 14 applies to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very good job. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah, Michael Lofton, uh, folks, check out Reason and Theology. Go to reasontheology.com or if you're on YouTube, uh, definitely check out their channel. Lots of great stuff coming from them. And man, the hour has absolutely flown. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening, and God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands on apologetics. Bye bye, everyone.